All right, John 1, let's stand for the reading of God's Word. We'll be looking at the first three verses by way of uh, to start. I also, I should have already asked you to do this, turn over to John 20 and verse 31. So you're gonna, uh, we're going to look at both verses here by way of introduction. John 1, 1 and John 20, verse 31. I'll give you a second to get over there. I am thankful for the attendance on Sunday evenings. The last three Sunday evenings, we, uh, we took a break from church Sunday evening, December 28th and the 25th, but the first 8th and 15th of this year have been very well attended uh, for a Sunday evening crowd, and thank you for that. Keep, keep coming. And uh, just make a commitment, 2023, to be faithful to church on Sunday nights. John 1, let's begin there, then we'll turn over to John 20. John 1, 1, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. The same was in the beginning with God. All things were made by him, and without him was not anything made that was made. And we'll give note more to this next week, but you notice that uh, the, the word, word, in the beginning of verse 1 is a capital W or a proper noun. That is speaking of a person. That is speaking of the Lord Jesus Christ. Turn over to John 20 and verse 31. Why did John write his gospel? Well, he wrote his gospel to tell us that Jesus is the Son of God. Look at verse 31. But these are written that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Messiah, the promised one, the chosen one, the Son of God, and that believing ye might have life through his name. So the title of the Bible study this evening is this, Jesus is the Son of God. Jesus is the Son of God. That's John's claim. He's going to make that claim uh, in the beginning of the book. He's going to let Jesus make that claim for himself the rest of the book. Let's pray. Lord, help us tonight as we uh, change gears from a preaching service like we had this morning to a Bible study this evening. Help us to be students and scholars of the Bible. Lord, teach us. Spirit of God, lead us into all truth. And uh, Lord, where there are little adjustments or even big adjustments that need to be made in our spiritual living, We pray you'd help us with that. If there's one here tonight that has not yet put their faith in Jesus alone to be their Savior, Lord, we pray you would guide them to the point of decision this evening. May their hearts be tender. May they be open in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Well, throughout 2023, we're going to cover the Gospel of John verse by verse. We're going to take it one verse at a time. And I'd like for us this evening to get a bird's eye view of the book uh, so that we can know the, the we can know what John's angle of the life of Christ accomplishes. So there are four divine accounts of the life of Christ, known as the Gospels. Each account offer a different perspective on the man Jesus of Nazareth. All four books were written. Listen carefully. All four books were not written by a man. They were written by God in heaven and then transcribed by a man on earth. And so we know these books by the men who transcribed them, but make no mistake about it, God in heaven authored Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And uh, they give the, these books give us a complete understanding of the purpose and work of Jesus while he dwelt among men. So why four different accounts of the life of Christ? Well, each one offers us a different perspective on who Jesus of Nazareth was. Matthew is meant to show us that Jesus is meant to show us Jesus as a king. 
If you read through the book of Matthew, even in the symmetry of the way the book is laid out, it is meant to show us that Jesus is the king. Now, uh, real quick here, there are, uh, there, the book of Matthew is laid out with five sections, just like the five books of the Pentateuch. Moses wrote the books of the Pentateuch, and Jesus wrote, or Jesus rather, is the completion of those uh, there. He is the greater lawgiver. A king is a lawgiver. So Matthew is meant to show us Jesus as a king. Now, uh, in contrast, Mark is meant to show us Jesus as a servant, as a servant. And so uh, you don't get the lineage of Jesus uh, through the line of David and Matthew and Mark. Rather, uh, it just jumps right into the story of Jesus and shows Jesus as a servant. So who is Jesus? He is the servant king. He is the servant king. And what does Jesus' life teach us? That the greatest among us should be what? Servant of all. All right, so um, uh, you don't think of a king as a servant. You don't think of a servant as a king, but Jesus was both. Then you get to the book of Luke, the, the gospel account according to Luke, and it shows Jesus as the son of man. As the Son of Man. And the emphasis is put on the humanity of Christ. Was Jesus a human being? Yes, he was. He was 100% a man. All right? But he wasn't just a man. All right? The book of John, the gospel account according to John, which we'll be looking at this calendar year, shows us, that Jesus, shows us Jesus as the Son of God. Jesus as the Son of God. So, you say, is it possible for someone to be 100% man and 100% God at the same time? And the answer is yes, only Jesus. Now, Jesus had the body of a man with the Spirit of God, and the Spirit within him was greater than the temptation to his flesh. So Jesus as the Son of God. So the purpose of the book of John is to show us the deity or divinity of Jesus of Nazareth. So as we consider the commands of Christ throughout the year, it is vital for us not only to understand the commandments that came from His mouth, but also for us to understand the compassion that came from His heart. So I hope this calendar year you will fall deeper in love with Jesus and the essence of who He was and is and how much he loved and loves broken sinners. John's proposal is that Jesus, while being 100% man, was also 100% God. Uh, Jesus came to earth for the purpose of perfecting institutions, proclaiming salvation, and pardoning sinners. He, he came to passionately show us how to love God and be loved by God and how to truly love uh, our neighbors as ourselves. And John did not just claim that uh, Jesus of Nazareth was God. Jesus himself would make this claim over and over and over again within the pages of, God, uh, John, uh, of John's gospel. Jesus uh, had called those whom he, uh, rather has called them, those whom he has pardoned to be his disciples. This means that we are to focus on our master and not on man or material items. Isn't that what we do? We focus on material items, the material, or we focus on men. God wants us to take our eyes off of material items and men and put our eyes on the master, the Lord Jesus Christ, and we uh, are to obey Jesus not only out of a sense of obligation, but 
rather out of a sense of love and loyalty because of what he did for us on the cross. So we're going to look at a bunch of themes this evening, all right? Uh, rapid fire succession. Get your seatbelt on. If you're, a, if you're a Bible student, you enjoy studying the Bible, you are going to love the Bible study tonight. I'm going to show you some really fascinating things from the book of John that I've unearthed or uncovered in my study. And if you like to study the Bible, you're going to enjoy it tonight. If you're not much of a student of the Bible, you may just be blown away by all of the things that I show you. Uh, but we're going to show you tonight how that Jesus is the Son of God. John makes that case in so many different ways throughout his gospel. Let's jump in and look at these themes. Number one, notice the profile of Jesus' life, the profile of Jesus' life. So if you're looking at John chapter 1, all right, it opens with a poem, and then on the end of that poem, not a poem in English, but a poem in the language it was written in, okay, so the first several verses are a poem, uh, and then, and we'll get look at that next week, and then a story about those who discover Jesus and claim that he is the promised Messiah, all right? Look at John chapter 1 and verse number 29. We're going to read all the way down to verse number 51. I'm doing this for a reason, not just uh, to read it, okay? There's a method for this. Look at 29. The next day John seeth Jesus coming unto him and saith, notice here, Behold the Lamb of God, which taketh away the sins of the world. All right? Help me out uh, with um, the scripture reading here uh, in, the, in the sound booth there with the advancing of... Uh, the slides, okay? So go ahead and throw that first one up there for me. The Lamb of God. Notice he's called here the Lamb of God, all right? Look at verse 30. This is he of whom I said, After me cometh the man which is preferred before me, for he was before me, and I knew him not, but that he should be made manifest to Israel. Therefore am I come baptizing with water. And John, John bare record saying, I saw the Spirit descending from heaven like a dove, and it abode upon him, and I knew him not, but uh, he that sent me to baptize with water, and came, uh, and the same said unto me, Upon whom thou shalt see the Spirit descending and remaining on him, the same is he which baptizeth with the Holy Ghost. And I saw and bear record that this is the Son of God. This is the Son of God. Look at verse 35. Again the next day, after John stood and two of his disciples, and looking upon Jesus as he walked, he said, Behold the Lamb of God. And the other, uh, and the two disciples heard him speak, and they followed Jesus. Then Jesus turned and saw them following, and said, saith unto them, What seek ye? They, they saw, rather, they said unto him, Rabbi, Rabbi, which is being interpreted, um, uh, Master, where dwellest thou? He saith unto them, Come and see. They came and saw where he dwelled, and abode with him that day, for it was about the tenth hour. One of the two which heard John speak and followed him was Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. He first findeth his own brother Simon and saith unto him, We have found the Messiah, which is being interpreted the Christ. And he brought him to Jesus. And when Jesus beheld him, he said, Thou art Simon, the son of Jonah. Thou shalt be called Cephas, which is being interpreted a stone. Uh, that the day following, Jesus would go forth into Galilee and findeth uh, Philippi and saith unto him, Follow me. Now Philip was of Bethsaida, the city of Andrew and Peter. Philip findeth Nathanael and saith unto him, We have found him, of whom Moses in the law and the prophets did write, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of 
of Joseph. Um, picking up there in verse 46, And Nathanael saith unto him, Can there any good thing come out of Nazareth? Wasn't the best part of town. Philip saith unto him, Come and see. Jesus saw Nathanael coming to him and saith unto him, Behold, an Israelite indeed, in whom is no guile. And Nathanael saith unto him, Whence knowest thou me? Jesus answered and said unto him, Before thou, uh, before that Philip called thee, when thou wast under the fig tree, I saw thee. Nathanael answered and said unto him, Rabbi, thou art the Son of God, thou art the King of Israel. Jesus answered and said unto him, Behold, I say unto thee, I saw thee under the fig tree, uh, believest thou? Thou shalt see greater things than these. And he saith unto him, Verily, verily, I say unto you, Hereafter ye shall see heaven open, and the angels of God ascending and descending upon the Son of Man. Uh, if you count how many different names for Jesus uh, are found from verse 29 down through verse 51, there are exactly seven titles. Jesus calls himself the Son of Man, and everyone else calls him by those other six titles. Uh, there is a theme, a thread we'll see develop as we get into the Bible study this evening. Now, I'm not a numerology doctrines guy. I don't build doctrines on numerology, but numerology, the study of numbers in the Bible. But I do believe that numerology can complement the doctrine that we know to be true, know to be so. And uh, we know that seven is the number of God, and there are exactly seven titles by which Jesus is called. And so what is John very carefully doing in his literary work here? He is declaring through the mouth of these people that Jesus is the Son of God, His profile. He was the Lamb of God, the Son of God, Rabbi or uh, Master, he, Messiah or Christ, Jesus of Nazareth, King of Israel, Son of Man, the profile of Jesus' life. Number two, notice the purpose of Jesus' coming. The purpose of Jesus' coming. Why is it that Jesus came? And again, this is just meant to give us a bird's eye view of the book. And so uh, we're going to make it through most of the book here uh, just uh, from a macro standpoint. Letter A, the purpose of Jesus' coming was to perfect. He came to perfect. Now, he came to perfect the four, four institutions. Uh, one, the first institution uh, listed here, he came to perfect the wedding union. Look at John chapter 2 and look at verse number 7. John 2 verse 7, Jesus saith unto them, fill the water pots with water, and they filled them up to the brim. And he saith unto them, draw out now and bear unto the governor of the feast. And they bear it when the rulers of the feast had tasted the water, which was made wine, and knew not whence it was. But the servants which drew the water knew. The governor of the feast called the bridegroom, and saith unto him, Every man at the beginning doth set forth good wine. And when men have well drunk, then that which is worse. But uh, thou hast kept the good wine until now. The beginning of miracles did Jesus in Cain of Galilee, and manifested forth his glory, and his disciples believed on him. And so here we have the first miracle of Jesus. Where is it? It's at a wedding, and he turns the water into wine. Now, you know, this was prophesied in Isaiah that Jesus would do this. Chapter 25 of Isaiah, verse 6, it says, And in this mountain shall the Lord of hosts make unto the people a feast of fat things, a feast of wines on the lees, of fat things full of marrow, of wines on the lees well refined. And so Jesus came to refine or to uh, perfect 
the wedding institution. By the way, the wedding union. By the way, Jesus would tell them that it was for the hardness of your heart. God gave Moses the, 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 bill, uh, the writing of the bill of divorce. It was never my intention. It was my intention for two people to be together. So Jesus comes along and offers great clarity, great perfection to the wedding union. How about the temple building? Turn over to John chapter number uh, 2. Are you already in 2? Look down at verse number 13. And the Jews' Passover was at hand, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem and found in the temple those that sold oxen and sheep and doves and the changers of money sitting. And when he had made a scourge of small cords, he drove them all out of the temple and the sheep and the oxen and poured out the money changers and overthrew the tables. You may know the story. Jesus gets a whip he goes into the temple, or rather the courtyard of the temple, which is supposed to be where the Gentiles are, are to pray, and he says, you turn my house of prayer into a den of thieves. That quote would come later. We're going to look at that here in a minute. But he flips over the money changers. What is he saying? He's saying, you, you have turned this uh, temple building into the wrong purpose. Look down at verse 18. Then answered the Jews and said, said unto him, What sign showest thou unto us, seeing that thou hast done these things? Jesus answered and said to them, Destroy this temple, and in three days I will rise it up. Then said the Jews, Forty and six years was this temple in building, and wilt thou rear it up in three days? He wasn't speaking of the, the physical temple. Look at the rest of the verse. But he spake of the temple of his body. He spake of the temple of his body. Jesus was speaking of his own temple. He said, you're going to, you all want to worship this temple building. He said, listen, uh, the greater temple is not this temple building. It's my body and you're going to tear it down and I'm going to rise up or raise from the dead in three days. Jesus came to perfect four institutions, the, uh, the uh, wedding union, the temple building. How about the temple leaders? Look at John chapter 3, look at verse number 1. There was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. That does not mean he held political office, but rather a spiritual office. He was ruler of the Jewish sect or the Jewish religion. Verse 2, the same came to Jesus by night and said unto him, Rabbi, we know that thou art a teacher come from God, for no man can do these miracles that thou doest except God be with him. Jesus answered and said unto him, Verily, verily, I say unto thee, except a man be born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus saith unto him, How can a man be born when he is old, can he enter the second time into his mother's womb and be born? Jesus answered, Verily, verily, I say unto thee, except a man be born of water and of the Spirit, he cannot enter into the kingdom of God. And Jesus here is touching on a problem that we have in religion all across the world. People who are religious but not righteous. Religious but not righteous. And I'm afraid that if you were to look at most religious leaders, what you'd find are people who can go through the formalities of a religion, but they don't know salvation through Christ. And Jesus here is saying to Nicodemus, who is a morally good man by the standard of, of everyone else, he's saying, it isn't about you being a good teacher, it's about you being born again. Born again. And he's saying here, you temple leaders, you need to get this... Uh, uh, you, this paradigm needs to shift. Instead of worshiping the shadows, you need to worship the Christ who casts the shadows. One more institution. We see sacred landmarks. Look at John 4 and verse 11. John 4, verse 11. All this is meant to do is whet your appetite for uh, the verse-by-verse -verse study uh, uh, beginning next week. Look at verse 11, John 4. Uh, the woman saith unto him, Sir, thou hast nothing to draw with, and the well is deep. From whence then hast thou uh, that living water? Art thou greater than our father Jacob, which gave us the well, and 
drank thereof himself and his children and his cattle. And what is the woman at the well doing? She's worshiping the well instead of worshiping the Lord of the well. She's worshiping the forefather as the sacred landmark instead of just worshiping the God of heaven. Jesus came to perfect the institutions, but he also came to perfect the Jewish four holy days, the four holy days. And uh, I'm just going to give you these quickly. The first one is the Sabbath, okay? Uh, Jesus would tell the Pharisees what? That he is Lord of the Sabbath, right? Remember, his, his disciples are eating the, the, uh, the, the, the wheat out of the field, and uh, they say to him, uh, you can't do that. It's Sabbath day. And he says, uh, I can do whatever I want. I'm, I'm Lord of the Sabbath. I, I am the completion of the Sabbath. And I was there on the first Sabbath resting after the world was made. And so he is the completion. He is the perfecter of the holy days. Not only the Sabbath, but also the Passover. What would they do at Passover? They would have uh, unleavened bread and unfermented wine at the Passover. And Jesus is that, uh, that bread and that wine. You may remember that his, uh, on that day, he stood up there in that upper room. What did he do? He said, this is my flesh, which is torn for you. This is my blood. This do ye in remembrance of me. He is the completion, the perfection of the Passover. When he died on the cross, he died at Passover so that the death angel of sin would pass over your soul to all those that have had the blood of Jesus not applied to some doorposts, but rather on the heart. How about the four holy days of the tabernacle? The tabernacle in the wilderness, God provided them. What did he provide for them? Water from a rock. You may remember that uh, they came to a flint rock and they were thirsty. And Moses struck the rock. And what happened? Water came pouring out of that flint rock for the million plus Jews plus all their cattle. And, and you can even go now to uh, that wilderness and find that flint rock and see where water in great gallons came rushing down over uh, that and, and changed and smoothed out those rocks so the Israelites would have a place to get water. And Jesus came along and what did he say? He said, I am the living water water that quenches your soul. How about this at the Feast of Tabernacles or the Holy Day of Tabernacles? Not only uh, was there a celebration of the water from a rock, but also the pillar of fire at night. You know, we looked this morning that Jesus is the light of the world, isn't he? Isn't he? Jesus came to complete, to perfect the four holy days. And there's one other one here, and that's one that uh, you may be familiar with, Hanukkah, Hanukkah. Uh, John, or rather Judas Maccabees, uh, back in, and this isn't recorded in Scripture, this would have been during that quiet era but, uh, of, of uh, prophecy, but Judas Maccabees cleared the temple of idol worship and rededicated it to the Lord. What do you think Jesus did? He didn't just clear out the, the, the uh, temple of idol worship. He, he did away with the need of a temple, the veil torn in two, and now those who put their faith in, in God, the Spirit of God comes down and indwells believers. He came to perfect. He came to perfect. What was the purpose of Jesus coming? Why did He come? He came to perfect. But not only did He come to perfect, He came to proclaim. Take your Bibles to John chapter 3. John 3 and uh, verse 1. He came to proclaim to the scholar. Look at verse 1 again. Then there was a man of the Pharisees. Now, to be a Pharisee, listen up. You had to have, historically, you had to have the first five books of the Bible memorized. That's impressive. Five books memorized. You had to know the law. I remember years ago, I went to a, a, a Catholic funeral. And I remember sitting there watching all of the 
uh, nuanced uh, things that the priest did and, and all of the things he had to recite and all the things he had to get through. And I sat there with my head spinning. I said, how does he remember how to do all this stuff? Well, how much more complicated was it for a Pharisee to have all of the Pentateuch memorized, but on top of that, to know all of the traditions of of the Jewish faith. And uh, listen, Jesus came to proclaim, and Jesus sat down with Nicodemus, a scholar, and he proclaimed salvation to Nicodemus. But he, he didn't stop with the scholar. John chapter 4, turn over to verse 1. He came to proclaim to the sinner. We find a woman in great sin in chapter 4. Look, at, It says there in verse 1, When therefore the Lord knew how the Pharisees had heard that Jesus made and baptized more disciples than John, though Jesus himself baptized not, but his disciples, he left Judea and he parted again into Galilee, and he must needs go through Samaria. Then cometh he to a city of Samaria, which is called Sychar, near to the parcel of ground that Jacob gave to his son Joseph. Now Jacob's well was there. Jesus, therefore, being wearied with his journey, sat thus on the well, and it was about the sixth hour. Look here. There cometh a woman of Samaria to draw water. Jesus saith unto her, Give me to drink. And you read on down to the story. Jesus says to her, Go and call your husband. And she says, I do not have a husband. And Jesus says, That is correct, because you have multiple husbands, and the man that you're living with right now, you're not even married to. And she would leave her water pot and go into the city and say what? Come and, find, come and, come and see a man that has told me everything I have done. You know what she's saying? And he still loves me anyway. Jesus revealed himself as the Son of God first to a Samaritan woman who was a wretched sinner and told her of salvation. But he didn't just proclaim to the scholar and to the sinner. Look at chapter 5. He proclaims to the sick, to the sick. Verse 1, chapter 5, After this there was a feast of the Jews, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Now there is at Jerusalem by the sheep market a pool, which is called in the Hebrew tongue Bethesda, having five porches. And these lay a great multitude of impotent folk, of blind and halt and withered, waiting for the moving of the water. For an angel went down at a certain season into the pool and troubled the water. Whatsoever or whosoever then first after the troubling of the water stepped in was made whole of whatever disease he had. And a certain man was there which had an infirmity thirty and eight years. When Jesus saw him lie and knew that he had been now a long time in that case, he saith unto him, Wilt thou be made whole? You know, Jesus walks up to this sick man and he says to him, Wilt thou be made whole? I'll talk about this more as we get into the verse by verse, but... Not everyone who's sick wants to be made whole. Some people who are sick, that's what they know, that's what they're familiar with, they wouldn't have it any other way. Jesus looked at him and said, do you want to be made whole? Do you want to be made better? And the Lord Jesus, he proclaimed truth to that man that day and healed him. So we see the scholar in chapter 3, the sinner in chapter 4, the sick in chapter 5. Look at chapter 6. And we see the skeptics. Look at verse 24. So in the beginning of chapter 6, Jesus feeds the 5,000 with the five loaves and two fishes. He puts his disciples in a boat. He sends them on across the Sea of Galilee. He goes up into a mountain uh, at nighttime to pray. And in the middle of the night, he comes walking on the water out to his disciples. And uh, he 
calms the storm and brings the disciples to the other side. Well, the people that he had fed and sent home, guess what? They didn't go home. You know what they did? They camped out at the base of the mountain and waited for Jesus to come down off the mountain. Do you know why? Because they were hoping that he'd feed them breakfast when he came down. And um, they waited and waited and waited, and his boat's still there on the shore, and, and he doesn't come down. So they all get in their boats, and they go across the Sea of Galilee, and, and they find him there, all right? And they say, Jesus, how did you get over here? Look at verse 24. Look at verse 24. When the people therefore saw that Jesus was not there, neither his disciples, they also took shipping and came to Capernaum seeking for Jesus. And when they had found him on the other side of the sea, uh, they say unto him, Rabbi, when camest thou hither? How did you get over here? 26. Jesus answered them and said, he, he doesn't even answer their question, Verily, verily, I say unto you, ye seek me not because ye saw the miracles, but because ye did eat of the loaves and were filled. It, you just want another meal. 27. Labor not for the meat which perisheth. Don't, don't be concerned over food that just... It perishes, but for the meat, and again, this is a metaphor, which endureth unto everlasting life. Rather, be concerned about eternal things, which the Son of Man shall give unto you, for him hath God the Father sealed. And he's saying here, listen, all you care about for me is a magic show and a meal. He said, I didn't come to just give you a, a magic show and the healings and, and a meal. He said, I came to give you eternal life. And look at verse 66, John 6, verse 66, after some hard sayings and some metaphors about eating and drinking the body and blood of Christ and, and them not wanting to go along with his teaching of believing and receiving. Look at 66, from that time, many of his disciples went back and walked no more with them. Then said Jesus unto the twelve, Will ye also go away? Then Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? Thou hast the words of eternal life, and we believe and are sure that thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. Jesus answered them, uh, Have not I chosen you twelve, and one of you is a devil? He spake of Judas Iscariot, the son of Simon, for he it was that should betray him uh, being one of the twelve. Now, I want you to picture Jesus as this growing figure of popularity up to John chapter 6. He's grown more, about halfway through his three and a half year ministry, he's grown more and more and more popular. Right? Everywhere he goes, people just, 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 just gather in great mass and multitude. If we could put it in today's term, his, uh, his social media account had skyrocketed into the hundreds of thousands and even millions of followers. And here in John 6, he hits his peak of popularity, and then all of a sudden, Jesus gets what we'll call deplatformed by the masses. He says some things that are not popular with the masses, and look back at verse number 66. From that time, many of his disciples went back and walked no more with him. How many were left? Twelve. Twelve. He was, in a lot of ways, in the eyes of a populist, deplatformed. You know what Jesus, who he, Jesus was preaching to? He was preaching the gospel to skeptics. Now, I want to make one application. We're going to move on. As you can see, I'm trying to move quickly here. One application. You should do what's right and say what's right, whether it's popular or unpopular. So we see to the skeptics. How about in chapter 7? Here he's going to give, uh, proclaim the truth to the scorners, the Pharisees. Look at verse 14. 
Now about the midst of the feast, Jesus went up into the temple and taught. And the Jews marveled, saying, How knoweth this man letters, having never learned? <laughs> How does he know the Bible, having never learned? He is the walking Bible. Uh, Jesus answered them and said, My doctrine is not mine, but uh, his that sent me. If any man do his will, he shall know of the doctrine, whether it be of God or whether I speak of myself. He that speaketh of himself seeketh his own glory, but he that seeketh uh, his glory that sent him, the same is true, and no unrighteousness is in him. Did not Moses give you the law, and yet none of you keepeth the law? Why go ye about to kill me? The people answered and said, Thou hast a devil who goeth about to kill thee. Jesus answered and saith unto them, I have done one work, and ye all marvel. Moses therefore gave unto you circumcision, not because it is of Moses, but of the fathers, and ye on the Sabbath day circumcise a man. And so he's pulling apart their hypocrisy. Jesus came to proclaim to the scholar, the sinner, the sick, the skeptic, and the scorner. We see the profile of Jesus' life. We see the purpose of Jesus' life. Number three, notice the passion of Jesus displayed. The passion of of Jesus displayed. Look with me at letter A. Notice he was passionate about our service to others. Jesus wants me and you to serve others. He does not simply focus on herself. He wants us to serve others. Look at John chapter 13. If there's going to be a part of the message that's more practical and applicable and less teachy, it's going to be this point here. And then the last point. Look at letter A. Again, passionate about our our service to others. John 13, look at verse 14. If I then, your Lord and Master, have washed your feet, ye also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that ye should do as I have done to you. Verily, verily, I say unto you, the servant is not greater than his Lord, neither he that sent greater than he that sent him. If ye know these things, happy are ye if ye do them. Don't you want to be happy? Smile at me if you want to be happy. Some of you need to smile. It's been a while, hasn't it? Did you forget how those muscles in your face work? All right. Okay. A happy are ye if you do them. If you do what? If you serve others. In his book, 70 Times 7, The Freedom of Forgiveness, David uh, Uggsberger tells of General William Booth. Listen to this. The founder of the Salvation Army who had lost his eyesight. His son Bromwell was given the difficult task of telling his father uh, there would be no recovery of his sight. Do you mean that I am blind, the general asked? I hear we must complicate, uh, contemplate that, his son replied. The father continued, I shall never see your face again? No, probably not in this world, Bromwell. Bromwell said, General Booth replied, Bromwell, I have done what I could do for God and for his people with my eyes. Now I shall do what I can now I shall now I now I shall do what I can for God without my eyes. What an attitude of service. I've done all I can with my eyes. Now I'm going to serve God without my eyes. There's a story about the American Revolution. A man in civilian clothes rode past a group of soldiers who were repairing a small defense barrier. Their, their leader, sitting on his horse, was just shouting instructions, but making no attempt to help them. So the, uh, the passerby in civilian clothes, he 
retorted with great dignity. He said, he asked why, why he wasn't helping. Why aren't you helping with this problem? And the leader retorted. He said, sir, I am a corporal. And the stranger apologized. He got down off his horse and he proceeded to help these exhausted soldiers. And the job done and uh, proceeded to help them. And uh, he, uh, he turned to the corporal and he said, Mr. Corporal, listen to, listen to this. Mr. Corporal, next time you have a job like this and not enough men to do it, go to your commander-in-chief and I will come again and help you. The man in civilian clothes was none other than George Washington. You willing to get down in the ditch and get your fingers dirty and serve others? You willing to help with housework around the, uh, around the home, men? Ladies, you willing to get in and help your husband with a project that maybe you, you don't have any interest in? You willing to serve your kids? Are you willing to serve the children of this church? To you employers, are you willing to serve your employees? Jesus said that if you want to be happy, you have to be a servant. Let her be noticed. He was passionate about His Spirit filling us. Passionate about His Spirit filling us. Look at John 14. Look at verse 22. Judah saith unto him, not Iscariot, Lord, how is it that thou wilt manifest thyself unto us and not unto the world? Look at verse 26. But the Comforter, which is the Holy Ghost, whom the Father will send in my name, he shall teach you all things, and bring all things to your remembrance, whatsoever I have said unto you. So when the Holy Ghost fills us, what does he do for us? He comforts us. He brings peace to our storm. He takes away our fears. What was Jesus passionate about? Our service to others, his spirit filling us. Notice letter C. He was passionate about our sanctification. Turn over to John 15. John 15. Look at verse number 1. I am the true vine, Jesus says, and my father is the husbandman. Verse 2, Jesus talks about purging. Purging. Look at verse 2. Every branch in me that beareth not fruit, he taketh away. And every branch that beareth fruit, he purgeth it, that it may bring forth more fruit. Verse 3, he talks about purification. Look at verse 3. Now you're clean through the word which I've spoken unto you. In verses 4 and 5, he talks about production. Production. Look at verse 4. Abide in me and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit of itself except it abide in the vine, no more can ye except ye abide in me. I am the vine, you're the branches. He that abideth in me and I in him, the same bringeth forth much fruit. For without me ye can do nothing. Verse 6 talks about Punishment. Look at verse 6. If a man abide not in me, he is cast forth as a branch, and is withered. And men gather them, and cast them into the fire, and they are burned. Verse 7 talks about God's power. Look at 7. If ye abide in me, and my words abide in you, ye shall ask what ye will, and it shall be done unto you. And then verse 8 talks about pleasing. Look at verse 8. Herein is my Father glorified, that ye bear much fruit, so shall ye be my Disciples. So our sanctification, we're, we're purged, we're perfected, we become productive. Why? For the purpose of pleasing the Father in heaven. He was passionate about our sanctification. Letter D, notice he was passionate about his salvation shared. His salvation shared. Look at chapter 15 and look at verse number 
27. Verse 27, notice there it says, And uh, ye also shall bear witness, because ye have been with me from the beginning. You're going to bear witness because you've been with me from the beginning. Acts chapter 4, verse 20, when the disciples, John Peter, were questioned, here's what they would say to the magistrates who were telling them that he'd said, For we cannot, they said, For we cannot but speak the things which we have seen and heard. You know what that means? We've been up close to Jesus and we've seen his life and we've seen how he's worked and we've seen how he's touched lives and we've seen how he saved souls and we've seen how he's redeemed our soul and we cannot help but speak the things which we have seen and heard. You see, when your religion to you is dead, you'll share it with nobody. But when your religion to you is life, because God has changed your life, you cannot help but tell anyone who will listen about what Jesus did for you. What was Jesus passionate about? He was passionate about His salvation being shared with the world. Letter E, notice, He was passionate about our suffering for righteousness. Look at John 16 and look at verse number 1. John 16, verse 1. These things have I spoken unto you that ye should not be offended. Uh, they shall put you out of the synagogues. Yea, the time cometh that whosoever killeth you will think that he doeth God's service. And these things will they do unto you because they have not known the Father nor me. But these uh, things have I told you that when the time shall come, ye may remember that I told you of them. And these things I said not unto you at the beginning because I was with you. And you know what he's saying here? The servant is not above his Lord. If they're going to persecute me and you're going to be a Christian, then they're going to persecute you. In fact, look down at verse 33. Look down at verse 33. These things have I spoken unto you that in me ye might have peace. In the world ye shall have tribulation, but be of good cheer. I have overcome the world. Now watch this, Christian. The darker the night grows, the more hostile the world grows toward the Bible and Christianity the more persecuted you should feel. In fact, we're getting to a point in our country that if you don't feel like the oddball in the culture, there's something wrong with you. If you don't begin to feel like the culture is sideways toward what you believe then you're not practicing the faith the way the Bible has it laid out. Jesus said, look, if they persecuted me and you're a follower of me, then they're going to persecute you. Are you ready to suffer for righteousness' sake? Number one, we see the profile of Jesus. Number two, the purpose of Jesus. Number three, the passion of Jesus. Number four, we see the person Jesus claimed to be. Now, I really like this part. I, I think it's really fascinating. Uh, we're going to move through these quickly, but it, just a neat little thing here. I'd recommend that in a moment, if, if you really want what I'm about to put on the screen, you just get, get a, a cell phone ready and take a picture. It's not going to be up there fast enough for you to write it all down, all right? But let's look at letter A. Notice seven I am comparisons. Seven I am comparisons. This gets back into the literary part. Now, to set this up, let me read for you Exodus 3. Exodus 3 is where we find the burning bush and uh, 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 Jehovah speaking with Moses from the burning bush. And Moses said unto God, Behold, when I come unto the children of Israel and shall say unto them, The God of your fathers hath sent me unto you, and they shall say to me, What is his name? What shall I say unto them? And God said unto Moses, I am that I am. And he said, Thus, th thus shalt thou say unto the children of Israel, I am, capital I, 
capital A, capital M, uh, M, I am as a name, a title, I am, hath sent me unto you. Not I was or I will be, but I am. I am implies a dwelling in all times. I am, I was, I will be. I am, Jesus said, or rather God said through the burning bush here, He said, tell them I am hath sent you. Now watch this. If you take the Hebrew words, I am, and you translate them into the Greek language, which the book of John was written in, then you find the words, the Greek words, ego emi, E-G-O-E-M-I, two words, ego emi. And it is a direct translation of the Hebrew covenant name that we just looked at in Exodus 3. Seven times Jesus would say, ego emi, and then tell us, compare himself to an item within the book of John. He would do it exactly seven times. Here they are. Put them up there on the screen for us. Seven times, I am the bread of life, I am the light of the world, I am the door, I am the good shepherd, I am the resurrection and the life, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and I am the vine. Seven times and only seven times, Jesus declared himself the ego of me of a comparative item. And why? Because seven being the number of, of, of God, the number of divinity. What is John trying to tell us here? John is telling us that Jesus claimed not just a good man, Jesus claimed to be God on earth. Seven I am comparisons, and I've got one more for you here. Seven I am claims. Seven I am claims. Go over to John chapter 18 and verse 1. When Jesus had spoken these words, he went forth with his disciples over the book Cedron, and where, where was a garden, and into the which he entered, and his disciples, and Judas also, which betray him, knew the place. For Jesus oft times re, uh, resorted thither with his disciples. Judas then, having received a band of men and officers from the chief priests and Pharisees, came hither with lanterns and torches and weapons. Jesus, therefore, knowing all things that should come unto him upon him, went forth and said unto them, Whom seek ye? They answered him, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus saith unto them, I am he. And Judas also, which betrayed him, stood with them. Now you'll notice that the word he is italicized. That's added by the King James translators for proper context. But in the uh, original language, what Jesus said was, ego emi, I am, I am. He was declaring himself to be Jehovah God. Now this is a I am claim, and you guessed it, seven times Jesus would tell someone, call himself the I am outside of the comparisons. Throw those next seven. Uh, I uh, throw that next slide up here. Are the seven I am claims. Okay, and again, go back to the Greek. We get the ego of me here. I that speaking to thee am he. John four, John six. It is I or ego of me. It is I am. Be not afraid. John eight twenty four. If you believe not that I am he, you shall die in your sins. John eight twenty eight and on down. You see the last one we read. I am He. By the way, in John 18, when He said, I am, do you know what happened to the soldiers? They fell over. His declaration of being the I am, not the soldiers, the centurion, uh, uh, the, the band of centurions, on their backs, and they had to get up and ask again, where is Jesus? Because they were disoriented. That is the power of the name of God. He is God. He did not just claim to be a good man. He claimed to be Jehovah God. We see the seven I am claims. Number one, the profile. Number two, the purpose. Number three, the passion. Number four, the person.
Jesus claimed to be. Number five, and we'll spend almost no time on this, but the punishment from Jesus' enemies. And as we get deeper into uh, the verse by verse, we'll spend ample time uh, uh, picking apart and analyzing the crucifixion of Christ. Notice letter A, we see in John 18, we see his examination. His examination. He was, tri- he was arrested and falsely tried. And uh, 18, 19 through 24, and then 28 through 38 lay out for us the examination of Jesus. And then we see letter B, his execution. His execution. John 19, 1 through 30 uh, goes in great detail to explain exactly what Jesus went through on the cross. One, thing, one of the things I love about John's account of the crucifixion is that it's highly relational. In fact, more of the inner communication with Jesus and those um, uh, on the ground or those around him is recorded in John, I believe, than any other gospel. But Jesus was executed. He was killed. Jesus, the King of Heaven, came to earth to be a man for the purpose of being nailed to a cross. And I just want to say to anyone here tonight that does not understand why Jesus came to earth, I want you to hear this statement loud and clear. He came to die for the sin of mankind. He came to die for you. He died for your sins and my sins. You see, sin brings death. And either I was going to have to die in hell for my sin, or God, in order to satisfy His justice, was going to have to put someone in my place. Jesus volunteered. He came to earth. He never committed one sin his entire life because He was God wrapped in flesh. You understand tonight, I cannot take your hell I cannot die for you because I am a sinner. But Jesus could die for you because he had never committed a single sin. What did What did God do to Jesus on that cross? God took every single sin that I've ever done and laid them on His Son and then punished Jesus in my place as He did for you. How much does God love you? So much that He let His Son leave the portals of heaven where he was worshipped as God and become a lowly man, a homeless man, a misunderstood man, and then a murdered man. He hung on that cross and he died in your place. He suffered in your place. You see, the penalty... The price tag, the sentencing, the punishment of your sin is death and hell. That's what you and I deserve for breaking the laws of God. And Jesus went through hell for me and you. He died in your place so that you 
could go to heaven. He went through hell on the cross so that you could go to heaven and be with Jesus. Now, while Jesus died for you, that does not guarantee you that you're getting into heaven. You see, because there is a little, one little thing, one little thing, and I'm taking time on this because I believe there's some people here tonight that need to hear it, all right? So hang in there with me and listen closely. There's one little thing God requires of you to get into heaven. Just one. And it's little. Oh, it's big, but it's little. Here it is. You must believe that Jesus is the Son of God, that He died in your place, and He rose from the dead. You must believe in Him to receive the gift of eternal life. And I'll just say this. I've said it this way before, but boy, I believe it's powerful and it bears repeating here. I can purchase you a gift. I can wrap the gift. I can come to your house and offer you the gift. But I cannot make you Take the gift. You have to open up your hands and your heart and receive the gift. Listen, God looked down and saw you condemned to hell and He went through great lengths to pay the price of your sin on the cross. He has bought you the gift of salvation in heaven. He has wrapped the gift of salvation in heaven and He's offering you the gift of salvation heaven, but He cannot make you take it. You, by faith, must say to God in heaven, please give me the gift of eternal life. And if you'll come to Him humbly, and you'll believe in Jesus alone, He'll give you the gift of eternal life, and He'll save your soul. When I was just a small child, I bowed my head and I said, Lord, I'm a sinner. I do not deserve eternal life. Would you please give me that gift? And that day Jesus saved my soul. For whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. I want to encourage you to do the same this evening. All you need to do is simply call out to the Lord by faith and ask Him to save you. I hasten, number six, notice the power of His resurrection. The power of His resurrection. All right, there's a theme running through the book of John. Seven I am comparisons. Seven I am claims. Now, let's look at the seven miracles recorded by John in his book. There are exactly seven miracles Jesus performed in the book of John. All right? Turn the water into wine, the healing of the sick boy, healing the paralyzed man, the feeding of the 5,000, the, um, the healing of a blind man. Uh, six is the number of man, and guess what Jesus did for a sixth miracle? He raised Lazarus from the dead. You can get that in John chapter 11. And then the seventh miracle is that he raised himself up from the dead. Now listen, uh, and there's all sort of historical proof uh, that shows us that Jesus did indeed defeat death and stand up from the dead. You're not doing that unless you're God. Jesus rose himself up from the dead in John chapter number 20. The power of His resurrection. Number seven, we see the, the portrayal of Jesus' disciples. We finish with this. Notice letter A. Discipleship is proper focus. Discipleship is proper focus. Now, I've given you a lot of information. I mean, it's been fire hydrant, open, full bore, coming out, hitting you in the face, probably knock you down. 
halfway through point one, all right? I hope you've gotten something out of it. Those of you that are truly Bible students, you've probably enjoyed uh, even more so this. Let me get very practical for about five minutes. Can you give me five minutes of your attention? Give me five minutes. I'm going to wrap it up, all right? Discipleship is proper focus. Did you know that you can be saved and not be a disciple of Jesus Christ? I believe our world is filled with people who are saved but living for themselves. Turn over to John 21. John 21. If you can hang your hat on one spiritual truth tonight, I want you to hang it on this right here. How can I be a disciple of Jesus? First, to be a disciple of Jesus, first you need to get your eyes off of the material. Look at John 21, look at verse 15. So when they had dined, Jesus saith to Simon Peter, Simon, son of Jonas, lovest thou me more than these? Notice that phrase, lovest thou me more than these? He saith unto him, Yea, Lord, thou knowest that I love thee. He saith unto him, Feed my lambs. That word, these, is a pronoun. What was he talking about? Lovest thou me more than these? He could have been pointing to the boats where they had just been. You see, Peter was discouraged and he had quit on being a disciple. And he had gone back to fishing. His profession that he was doing before Jesus called him. Jesus could have been pointing at the boats and saying, Do you love me, Peter, more than those boats over there, those fishing boats? Do you love me more than your former career? Or he could have been pointing at the disciples and saying, Do you love me more than you love these men? You know what Jesus wants? He wants you to take your eyes off of the material. Too often we're focused on the day-to-day things in front of us. My vehicle and the repair of my home and uh, things at work and uh, the, 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 the toys I can buy and my Amazon shopping list and, and, and what I can get at the store and how I make this better and how I make that better. And listen, Jesus points at these things and He says to Peter, Peter, if you're going to be a disciple, you need to be properly focused. Do you love Me more than these material things? Too many of us today are not the disciple of Jesus we ought to be because we're focused on the material. Notice next, if you're going to be a disciple of Jesus, you need to get your eyes off men. You need to get your eyes off men. Look at verse 20. Then Peter, turning about, seeth the disciple whom Jesus loved following, which also leaned on his breast at supper, and said, Lord, which is he that betrayeth thee? Peter, saith, uh, uh, Peter seeing him, saith to Jesus, Lord, and what shall this man do? So he's pointing at John. He says, and what, what about him? Jesus saith unto him, If I will uh, that he tarry till I come, what is that to thee? Follow thou me. You know what Peter did? He did what me and you like to do. He found someone else to point at and take the attention off of, right? I find it funny that, uh, especially when my kids were younger, they do this less now, still do it sometimes, but when they, especially when they were younger, I'd be getting on one of my children. You know what they do? They point the finger at their sibling. Well, he did it too. She did it too, right? You know, adults do that at work sometimes, don't they? It wasn't just me. I wasn't the only one that was late getting back from lunch, right? I'm not the only one that's late to work. I'm not the only one that cuts out early. I'm not the only one that plays Candy Crush while on the clock, right? It's not just me. It, 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 it's him too. And, 
And, and, and here, uh, God, Jesus is saying to Peter, in front of all the disciples, he's challenging him. He's putting his finger in Peter's face and he's saying, do you love me? He didn't ask John. He didn't ask Bartholomew. He didn't ask Thomas. He asked Peter. And Peter is feeling the heat. You know what Peter does? He turns and says, well, what about John? You know what Jesus says to him? He says, if I want John to live until I come back, what is that to you? Peter, get your eyes off of John and follow me. Too often we're worried about others instead of just putting our eyes on the Lord and following the Lord. You know, it doesn't matter uh, where someone else in this room is in their walk with God. It matters where you are in your walk with God. Get your eyes off of men and put your eyes on the Master. Eyes off the material, eyes off men. Notice, rather, eyes on the Master. Eyes on the Master. Look at John 21, look at verse 15. So when they had dined, Jesus saith to Simon Peter, Simon, son of Jonas, lovest thou me more than these? He saith unto them, Yea, Lord, thou knowest that I love thee. He saith unto him, Feed my lambs. He saith unto him again the second time, Simon, son of Jonas, lovest thou me? He saith unto him, Yea, Lord, thou knowest that I love thee. He saith unto him, Feed my sheep. He saith unto him the third time, Simon, son of Jonas, lovest thou me? Peter was grieved because he said unto him the third time, Lovest thou me? And he said unto him, Lord, thou knowest all things. Thou knowest that I love thee. Jesus saith unto him, Feed my sheep. Peter, you're distracted. Peter, you've lost focus. Peter, you're discouraged over what happened there uh, at the uh, trial and and you're denying me. Peter, uh, you've quit and you've gone back to fishing. In fact, you were even fishing in immodest clothing. Peter, you've gone back and you've quit uh, uh, living for me. Peter, you've got your eyes on men. Peter, you've got your eyes on material good. Peter, you've got your eyes back on making money. He says, Peter, I want to ask you a question. Do you love me? Peter puts his head down and won't look Jesus in the eye as I read this. and He says, yeah, Lord, you, you know I love you. Peter glaring a hole, Jesus glaring a hole through Peter says, Peter, do you love me? Peter again, unable to make eye contact with Jesus says, yeah, yeah, Lord, you, you know I love you. Peter, Peter, do you love me? I mean, do you really love me? I see a a tear beginning to form and run down the cheek of this weathered fisherman. The Bible says he was grieved because Jesus asked him the third time. And he said, Yea, Lord, you you know all things. You know my heart. You you know where I am. You know I'm discouraged. You, You know I'm distracted. But you also know that I love you. Jesus says to Peter the third time, Feed my sheep. You know what he's saying to Peter? I have a work for you to do. Get out of the ditch. Get your eyes back on me. And be my disciple. Some of you here tonight might be discouraged. Well, it's time to get our eyes off the material. Get your eyes off men. Put our eyes on the Master. Let her be. And lastly, discipleship is proper fellowship. Discipleship is proper fellowship. Look at verse 19, and I finish with this. Then spake he, signifying by what death he should glorify God. And when he had spoken this, he saith unto him, 
follow me. You know what G- Peter Peter ended up doing? He ended up dying on an on history tells us on an upside down cross. Upside down cross. Peter followed Jesus to the death. Peter gave his heart to the Lord. He followed him all the way to the end. Are you a disciple of Christ? Well, you're here on a Sunday evening. You know, that's not normal to be in church on a Sunday evening anymore. You're here because somewhere in your heart, at the very least, you're interested in who Jesus is. For most of you here, you're here because you want to be a disciple of Christ. Boy, let's, uh, let's focus on the Lord. Let's get busy following the Lord. Not just in action, but in our spirit. Amen? Lord, thank you tonight. We've covered a lot of ground. We've looked from the, the sky, if you will, at the Gospel of John. What a challenge. It's not possible to properly convey how powerful of a book this is. One of the most powerful portions inside the Bible. Lord, this has been my feeble attempt to give a bird's eye view of the book. Spirit of God, you have the ability to take weak things and make them mighty. And so I pray that you will take my weak effort of teaching and preaching tonight and Spirit of God, do a mighty, profound work in the heart of your people. Help us to be true disciples. If there's one here this evening that's not put their faith in you alone for salvation, we pray they'd be like the scholar or uh, the, the, the sinner who had had not believed but came to you for salvation. May they leave here this evening knowing what it means to be a child of heaven, a child of God. Bless our invitation in Jesus' name.